We all want the best for our loved ones when they are getting up in age and are needing extra care and pampering. We realize that many times the hospital or nursing home may be their final resting place under the watchful eye of a professional and attentive caregiver. There are some, though, that take their job assignment a little too seriously. Today, we meet three of them. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. They are referred to as angels of mercy, those who work in the healthcare field and believe that they are doing the families and the patients a favor by ending their suffering. Many of their targets are the elderly or long-term patients or those with a terminal illness. Isn't it better for those suffering from intense pain or who have to spend the rest of their life in a hospital bed or snore too loud or push the nurse's buttons too often or are just too grumpy? Isn't it better for them to just be put out of their misery? For those who believe that, the taking of life becomes a choice of higher calling, but sometimes just an excuse to find access of victims that people might not miss or suspect. When there's an abundance of beating hearts already in a weakened state, and the only thing stopping their heart is a simple tweak in their dosage of medicine, People die in the hospital all the time. Who would be the wiser? It may not be as attention-grabbing as a kill room, but angels of death can rack up quite the body count in a short period of time. For some of these angels of death, or angels of mercy, they revel in the power of life over death and the ability to take it away or save someone whenever they choose. Others with narcissistic characteristics embrace the praise poured over them of bringing a patient back to life from near death at the amazement of co-workers and family members. They are deemed a hero. The patient is forever grateful to their own personal savior, that person who brought them so close to death in the first place. These destructive angels are not easy to spot. They don't follow the usual serial killer codes. They are not usually killing the neighbor's cats or come across as brooding or loners. They are, in fact, some of the nicest, kindest people their patients and supportive family members have ever met. What they don't know won't hurt them, right? Dr. Michelle Leno did an interview with Insider saying, quote, Generally, serial killers are diagnosed with antisocial personality disorders. Angels of death, however, do not always possess antisocial intent. They may believe that their actions eliminate misery and serve the greater good. End quote. She does go on to say that quote, medical killers may be rigid, controlling, and intense, but others may perceive them as simply high strung or serious about their jobs. End quote. Some love the idea so much they become an entrepreneur of death, so to speak. I guess it's time to introduce you to Sister Amy Duggan Archer Gilligan. 
She was born in Connecticut on October 1, 1868, the eighth of ten children. She waited until she was 29 to get married, and she became a wife and mother all in the same year. Amy's husband, James, and their new daughter, Mary, were hired on as caretakers in 1901 for John Seymour. Amy would take on the nursing and household duties, while James would care for the grounds and estate. When Seymour passed away in 1904, his heirs turned the house into a boarding house, and the Duggins were invited to stay on and care for the grounds. Amy would charge a fee for tending to the elderly boarders, and soon they ran the boarding house as a business known as Sister Amy's Nursing Home for the Elderly. The Seymours opted to sell the house, so James and Amy purchased a large residence with their savings in Windsor, Connecticut. They called it the Archer Home for the Elderly and Infirm. James Archer, it is said, died of kidney disease in 1910, and luckily Amy had taken out an insurance policy on him only weeks before he died. With this money, she was able to continue the business. A few years later, Widow Michael W. Gilligan, who had four grown sons, took a shine to the widowed Mrs. Duggan. He had approached her with an interest of investing in the boarding house, but soon came clean and asked for her hand in marriage. They were married in 1913. Michael Gilligan was a very wealthy man and introduced Amy to a life she'd never known. Sadly, Michael died on February 20, 1914, of acute bilious attack. But, as luck would have it, he had drawn up a will leaving his entire state to his bride. Franklin R. Andrews was a resident of the Archer home and would frequently be seen tending to the garden on the grounds of the home. According to a correspondence with his sister, Nellie, he complained of no unusual ailments. And yet, on May 13, 1914, he had collapsed suddenly and died. The coroner noted that the cause of death was to be gastric ulcers. Nellie had trouble accepting the diagnosis and began doing some investigating. She was the heir to her brother's things, so she began reading his journals looking for clues. There she discovered more than a few notations that Mrs. Archer Gilligan had pressed him for more money, and apparently he had just given her a $500 loan just days before his passing. She took her suspicions to the local district attorney, and she was dismissed rather quickly. She decided instead to take her research to the Hartford Current newspaper. Carlin Gosley, who wrote the weekly obituaries for Windsor, had already noticed the frequent deaths at the Archer House. Smelling a great story, the Current wasted no time in running with it. They began comparing death certificates of residents of the Archer House there seemed to be an alarming amount of stomach ailments and sudden deaths. After finding out that there were 12 deaths between 1907 and 1910, which escalated to more than 40 between 1911 and 1914, by the time May 9, 1916 rolled around and their first of several articles on quote-unquote The Murder Factory were published, the death toll had reached 48 and family members of the deceased began asking questions. The police were forced to start paying attention. People wanted answers. 
five bodies were eventually exhumed and tested, including Frank Andrews and the late Mr. Gilligan. The others were Alice Gowdy, Maud Howard Lynch, and Charles Smith. All five had died of poisoning, either arsenic or strychnine. Amy Archer Gilligan was arrested and tried for the five murders of those that were exhumed. It had also been recently discovered that her late husband's will had been forged, and it was in her handwriting. On July 13, 1917, she was found guilty of five counts of murder. On July 18th, she was sentenced to hang by the neck until dead on November 6, 1917. She would be the first woman handed down a death penalty in Connecticut. Archer Gilligan's lawyers appealed and she was granted a new trial in 1919. Because the newspapers ran their story called The Murder Factory, her lawyers pled for appeal using the objective that the court and jury were already biased against her. She could not, quote, obtain a fair trial by an impartial and unprejudiced jury in said Hartford County, end quote. That appeal was discounted. In 1917, her defense team tried again with, quote, each of the said counts in the indictment charging a separate and distinct murder raises its own issues, and the issues raised by each individual count of the indictment are separate and distinct from the issues arising out of the other counts. That the said issues cannot be tried at the same trial without embarrassing the defendant in making her defense and the trial of the charges set forth in the separate accounts of the indictments cannot be tried at the same time without confusion and injustice to the defense. End quote. Hmm. A second trial was granted. And by reintroducing the fact that impartiality due to the media, quote, the men actually summoned have been influenced unfavorably against the accused by newspaper articles and by discussions caused by the newspaper articles, and that the accused cannot have a fair and impartial trial at the hands of the jury selected from such a body of men, end quote. And thus a new jury was gathered. Her sentence was commuted to life in prison, but in 1924, Archer Gilligan was declared temporarily insane and was transferred to Connecticut Hospital for the Insane in Middletown. This is where she remained until her death on April 23, 1962. Side note, it is believed that the Archer home is considered to be the first in the business that paved the way for today's retirement and nursing homes. Also side note, Joseph Kesselring, the playwright, is said to have based his stage hit Arsenic and Old Lace on this particular case. It was bought up by Frank Capra after its Broadway run and turned into the Cary Grant movie classic it's known for today. Not sure how Mrs. Archer supplied the poison, but the ladies in the play helped lonely elderly men to the peaceful great beyond by poisoning them with glasses of homemade elderberry wine laced with arsenic, strychnine, and just a pinch of cyanide. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones. And I have to tell you, I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. 
In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. Honora Kelly was born March 31, 1854, to Irish immigrants, Bridget and Peter Kelly. She was the youngest of three girls. Delia was the middle child, and Nellie was the oldest. Around 1857, Bridget would die of tuberculosis, leaving Peter in charge of the three girls. He was known to be an alcoholic, but also abusive and later deemed insane. He discovered pretty early on that the three children were too much for him, so he signed his two youngest over to the Boston Female Asylum, which was doubling as the orphanage. The older sister doesn't have a lot of information out there other than she too ended up in an insane asylum later in life. Delia would at some point become a prostitute and disappear from public record, but our sweet-faced, smiling Honora was adopted out by the Toppin family. She was never legally adopted as she was taken in to serve as an indentured servant, which means that she could work off what they paid for her plus expenses and then she would be free to go, around the age of 18. They did change her name to Jane Toppin and she recalls that the family treated her well. The Toppins already had a child close in age to Jane, and her name was Elizabeth. They became good friends, not quite sisters, as the family would constantly remind Jane as to her place within the family dynamic. Jane stayed with the Toppin family until she turned 18, and then was given $50 to begin her training at Cambridge Hospital in Nursing in 1885. It was said that she was a very happy student and was well-liked, intelligent and studious. Due to her outgoing personality and her brilliant sense of humor, she was given the nickname Jolly Jane. She presented as being very caring and kind to her patients. She was noted as being quote-unquote very attentive with her patients and found her area of specialty was with the elderly. She was willing to tend to those who were very sick and those who were close to death. An article printed by The Sun in 1938 would interview one of her instructors who would say, quote, In her schoolwork, as in her profession in later years, she was one of the leaders of her class, brilliant and aggressive in all things, end quote. However, what the people didn't know was that Jane was taking on a little extracurricular scientific experiments with these patients. He was fascinated with the way the medicines would produce certain results. She began cocktailing morphine and atropine, which is made from the herb belladonna, and watch, literally stand there and watch how the drugs played out on their bodies. She would create fake charts for her clients so as not to arouse suspicion, and her experimentation would bring them to the point of unconsciousness, and then she would bring them back out again. She would confess to laying in bed with the patients just before she injected them with their fatal dose 
so she could coddle them and whisper soothing thoughts in their ears. One of her patients, Amelia Finney, was able to escape the final morphine overdose, but would remember that Jane would give her bitter-tasting medicine after her surgery, and that just before slipping into unconsciousness, Jane would climb into bed with her while her limbs were numb and, quote, kiss her all over her face and stroke her hair, end quote. Her instructors at Cambridge noticed her morbid curiosity of death. While other nursing students were fainting and becoming nauseous, Jane was fascinated with death and dying. She was eventually terminated from two hospitals, one because of her erratic behavior and another because she was mismanaging the use of opiates. She would later admit to poisoning multiple patients at the Cambridge Hospital, but she did not admit to killing any of them. I guess back then there was no such thing as follow-up or alerting authorities, so Jane was allowed to go on her merry way and wreak havoc as she went. Jane decided that she had had enough experience under her belt to go out on her own. She was so well-liked that soon she had plenty of corpses under her belt. Uh, clients. I mean, clients. She was highly sought after, and since the majority of her clients were elderly, no one gave it a second thought that they passed away. She found a couple to live with, the Dunhams. Jane was not very good with money. I mean, morphine is expensive, and she was accused of petty theft often. But in 1895, when it came time for her to have to pay her back rent to her landlord, she opted to kill him instead, and then was kind enough to stay on with the poor widow until 1897, two years later, when it was time to kill her too. She would later tell her lawyer that the couple had gotten, quote, feeble and fussy. She moved on to a friend's house and cared for an elderly local man, who died. And then Jane killed her own friend that allowed her to stay with her only a month later so she could take her job at the theological school, which she was fired from because A, she didn't know what she was doing, and B, she was a little bit of a thief, so the financials kept coming up wrong. With no one to continually bother her for rent, she decided it was time to invite her not-really-adopted sister over for a visit. In 1899, Elizabeth and her housemaid came to visit, and Jane killed her slowly with doses of strychnine every day until she finally passed away. She made sure it was a long and painful death. She would bring her close to death and then heal her just enough to have false hope, only to bring her back down again. She would say, quote, I held her in my arms and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. End quote. She wrote a letter to Elizabeth's husband, letting her know of her passing. Somewhere after Elizabeth's death, she also found time to kill Elizabeth's housemaid, Florence. She moved on to live with Melvin and Eliza Beadle in the early months of 1901 and began poisoning them right away. Not enough to kill them but just enough that they would need her to stay to take care of them. And to secure her position, she poisoned the housekeeper to make her appear drunk so she could steal her job. I'm not sure if this nucleus of people were murdered or managed to escape death when she moved on. At this point, I think it's become a compulsory thing. 
It might have begun with the science or the curiosity, and then it became a necessity, throwing in a little revenge, but now it just seems like she just can't help herself, and no one is seeing a pattern. She moved around frequently enough, and the world at that time was not small enough to keep track of one woman and her deathly track record. In 1901, Jane moved in with the wealthy Davis family. She was hired to take care of the Davis matriarch, but when she died on July 5, 1901, Jane stayed on to take care of the widow, Alden Davis. On July 26, the youngest of the Davis children, Genevieve Gordon, suddenly died. Less than a month later, Jane poisons Alden Davis's sister, and then, after that, she poisons him. August 8, 1901, is when Alden Davis dies. All that's left are the two grown daughters, and Jane quickly kills them off in a matter of two weeks. In some stories, Jane says she had to kill the daughter Minnie Davis Gibbs. The story says she asked Minnie to sign off on the huge debt she incurred against the family. Jane was renting, or I guess rather squatting, in their summer home and owed back rent. Minnie refused, so on August 12th, some accounts say she poisoned her with morphine tablets that were put in her drink, and others say she was given an injection. Both fall under Jane's M.O., but the stories vary. So now, one of the richest families in town all die within months of each other, and the live-in nurse is the only one alive to walk away. This finally rouses suspicion. And walk away she did. The surviving members of the extended Davis family pushed for answers and had originally thought Jane might have been using arsenic. If you've been listening to Bag of Bones podcast for any length of time, you know how popular arsenic was a drug of choice. But they could find no evidence. In the meantime, Jane had weaseled her way into her now-deceased sister's household. Elizabeth's husband allowed her to come and visit. While she was there, she thought that if she could get Oromel Brigham marry her, her troubles would be over. She would settle down and be a good wife, perhaps in her mind finally reaching the same status as her foster sister who always looked down on her. But now his sister was getting in the way. She was obviously going to have to be removed from the situation. So as not to cause suspicion, she poisoned both the sister, Edna Barrister, and the man she hoped to marry. Sadly, poor Edna didn't make it, but Jane nursed Oromel back to life. She wanted to Florence Nightingale him to love her, but when that just didn't happen, she had to poison herself just enough to be sick so he would realize how much he loved her and try to save her. He didn't. He would not be swayed to fall in love with her, and once she healed from her supposed overdose, he kicked her out of his home. Jane retreated to her friend Sarah Nichols' home in Amherst, New Hampshire. What she didn't realize was that the case against her was still being built up in Lowell. Permission was finally granted to exhume Minnie's body and a couple of the other Davis family members. While they could find no evidence of arsenic, they decided to check for any other oddities found in the bodies. 
This is where they found lethal amounts of morphine. Jane is arrested on October 26, 1901 for the murder of Minnie Gibbs. At first, she claimed she had nothing to do with her murder. But then, for some reason, she decided to confess to 12 murders. But then to her lawyer, she confessed to 31. Because those were the only ones she could remember right off the top of her head. The trial commenced on June 23, 1902, and Jane happily confessed to killing 31 people. She was insulted when the insanity plea was offered, insisting that by confessing to the murders, it was proof she wasn't insane, hoping that she would be later released from prison. But to the legal system and the jury that had to hear the evidence, they thought the opposite. If you're saying you committed these murders on purpose, that's evidence enough that you are insane because sane people don't commit murder. Attorney General Herbert Parker testified she killed many friends and twice wiped out entire families. These would be the Aidan P. Davis families and her sister Elizabeth's family. The trial took only eight hours and the jury deliberated for only 27 minutes. She was found not guilty for murder by reason of insanity on June 23, 1902. The Los Angeles Herald of June 24, 1902 would reprint from the Boston release, quote, Suspected of death of seven persons but indicted for murdering only three, Miss Jane Toppin, who was yesterday declared insane, has confessed that she has killed during her career as a professional nurse no less than 31 human beings. This statement was made to Judge Frederick M. Bixby of Brockton when Miss Toppin was found not guilty by reason of insanity of the charge of murdering Mrs. Mary D. Gibbs. Judge Bixby also said that Miss Toppin had admitted that she had set fires and committed other serious acts. She said she could not help committing the crimes. She argued, moreover, that she was not insane. She said she knew she was doing wrong when she administered poison to her victims, and she asked Judge Bixby how, under the circumstances, she could be of unsound mind, end quote. She would later blame being left at the altar in her youth as the initial cause. When she was 16, she was supposedly engaged to an office worker who fell in love with another woman and moved away to be with her instead. Jane would say, quote, If I had been a married woman, I probably would not have killed all those people. I would have had my husband, my children, and my home to take up my mind. End quote. After her arrest, she became more open with her deviant lifestyle, claiming that she derived sexual pleasure from the control she held over the patient's life and death. She admitted to straddling the dying patients so as to look in their eyes to watch the life leave their eyes. The number of deaths that were attributed to Jane Toppin climbed upwards of a hundred or more. She is considered to be one of the first female serial killers, as well as one of the highest body counts until recent years. The Sun newspaper would release on November 1, 1901, quote, 
If all of the suspicions involving the operations of Jane Toppin could be substantiated in the opinion of men acquainted with the investigations, the succession of murders will cover a wider range and be more astounding than any series of crimes perpetuated by one person in many years. End quote. The Clinton Morning Age would write about her in 1902, stating she was, quote, the greatest criminal of modern times. End quote. Looking back on her life, she reflected that the murder of her pretend sister was the only one committed out of ill will. She admitted to fostering resentment to her years of mental abuse and condescension. One newspaper reported that she admitted to murdering her adoptive parents, but I couldn't find anything that substantiated that. Although, knowing what we know now, I think it's possible. Jane Toppin spent 34 years in Taunton Lunatic Asylum. She was 81 when she died on August 17, 1938. And one final story. Give our sponsors just a moment of your time, and I will be right back to introduce you to Anna Marie Hahn. As a mother of grown daughters and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings. I always let my people know where and when I'm going places. But to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety. And can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. On August 1st, 1937, doctors at Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs, Colorado, try valiantly to save the life of 67-year-old George Obendorfer. He was apparently visiting the area, and originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, he got sick on the train out there. The staff from the hospital contacted the police because his death seemed a bit suspicious. He told them that he was staying at the Park Hotel since July 30th. The police then go to the hotel to try and find some details and discover that the elderly gentleman was accompanied by a young woman and a child. When they went to the room, there was no sign of either. No suitcases, no clothes. The room was completely empty. As the police were getting ready to leave, the hotel manager flagged them down telling them about a recent report of stolen diamonds that was just placed by one of his guests. The police, thinking the two cases might be connected, knew their next step. They went to their local pawn shop, and the owner there described the young woman and a boy, and that they were indeed trying to pawn some gems, but he didn't take the sale. 
news got back to the local police that a Mrs. Obendorfer was trying to withdraw $1,000 from the Denver bank using a Cincinnati bank book. Assuming this was their girl, they went ahead and ordered an arrest warrant. And just in case she slipped through their fingers, they also alerted the police in Cincinnati that she was wanted for larceny and possible murder. She managed to elude the police in Colorado, but did get picked up when she returned home to Ohio. Her name was Anna Marie Hahn. She was questioned about her trip to Colorado. During the investigation, she originally claimed she didn't even know George, and then only just met him. But her son, Oscar, accidentally told the police that they had been dating and took them on the train when he started to get sick on the way. Kids, they say the darndest things, don't they? So now they have her in custody, and the whole story begins to unravel. Anna Marie was born in Germany, but when she was 19, she had a child out of wedlock. Due to her family's shame, she was sent to America to live with an aunt and uncle. There are conflicting stories as to whether she was able to bring the child with her or if she went back to get him, but she is with him when she meets and marries Philip Hahn. The newlyweds decide to go into the deli business, and here is where Anna Marie learns the magic of insurance claims. On accident or on purpose, one of the delis had a small fire, but Anna is rewarded $300 for the damages. Oddly enough, two other fires took place in their home only a year apart, garnering $2,000. When her husband discovered that Anna tried to take out two $25,000 life insurance policies on him, twice, he decided that he didn't want to be married any longer. Without a husband or a deli to fall back on, she decided the role of caregiver might suit her. She began taking care of a 78-year-old man by the name of Jacob Wagner. He died under mysterious circumstances while under her care, and even more interesting was that he left her his entire estate. The neighbor across the hall would remember Anna when the police came to speak with her. He would recall that she was sweet and thoughtful. On at least two occasions, she brought back ice cream for her when she was getting some for herself and Jacob. One time, she remembered, she got violently ill and had to go to the hospital, and while she was there, her apartment was robbed. Coincidence? I think not. In July of 1937, 67-year-old George Gesselman died a severe and brutal death of internal injuries. His autopsy would show that he died of a metallic poison. It was discovered to be croton oil. This substance is so volatile to the human system when it is misused. In large doses, it can cause severe vomiting and diarrhea, intense burning in the mouth, throat, and abdomen, and internal bleeding. Since they seemed to be on a roll, the police decided to call for the autopsy of Jacob Wagner's body. While they waited, they went on to investigate Han's apartment. There, they found a promissory note from an Albert Palmer. Follow the money. When they arrived at the Palmer home, the police were informed that he died in March of 1936. He had been ill for some time and that Anna had been his nurse. 
they also made mention that about $4,000 worth of cash and items were also missing. The results from Wagner's autopsy showed a large amount of arsenic in his stomach, enough to kill four men. It's true that Colorado was waiting patiently for Anna Marie Hahn to be extradited back there for theft and perhaps murder, but finders keepers. She was formally charged on August 10, 1937 for the murder of Jacob Wagner. Her trial began on October 11, 1937, with testimonies from her former husband, Philip, who produced a bottle of croton oil that he claimed he took from her before leaving, believing that she was poisoning him. Another man that hired her to be his caregiver, George Heiss, came forward with the story that he became sick to his stomach, vomiting blood, after drinking a glass of beer she poured for him. He fired her before it was too late. Handwriting analysis experts showed that Wagner's will had been forged and the handwriting matched that of Anna Marie Hahn. The internal organs of Jacob Wagner and Albert Palmer were brought into the courtroom, I guess to silently testify for their humans. Even until the very end, despite the mountain of evidence against her, Anna Marie Hahn stood by her innocence. In the closing statements, the prosecutor held nothing back, encouraging the jury to, quote, Do your duty. I ask of you for the state of Ohio that you withhold any recommendations of mercy, end quote. He would walk back and forth in theatrical closing statement form, speaking eloquently yet cutting, quote, She is sly because she developed her relationships with old men who had no relatives and lived alone. She is avaricious because no act was so low, but she was ready to commit it for the slight gain. She is cold-blooded like no other woman in the world because no one could sit here for four weeks and hear this damaging parade of evidence and display no emotion. She is heartless because nobody with a heart could deal out the death she dealt these men. We've seen here the coldest, most heartless, cruel person that ever has come within the scope of our lives, end quote. It took only two hours for the jury to return their verdict, guilty with no recommendation for mercy. This would be the first time a woman would receive the death penalty in the state of Ohio. On November 10th, Anna Marie stood before the judge and he asked if she had anything to say for herself. She replied, quote, I have. I'm innocent, Your Honor. End quote. The judge paused, waiting to see if there was more coming, but that was all she wanted to say. She was scheduled to be electrocuted on March 10, 1938. Quote, the said warden shall cause a current of electricity sufficient to cause death to pass through the body of the said defendant, the application of such current to be continued until the said defendant is dead. And may God, in his infinite wisdom, have mercy on your soul. End quote. The appeals rolled over each other, and each time the state agreed to uphold the original verdict. December 7, 1938, it was time for the sentence to be carried out. Her day was spent writing letters, which she entrusted to her attorney, and when the prison guards came to walk her down to the chamber, she broke down into hysterics. 
She begged and pleaded and fought every step of the way, the guards half-dragging, half-pushing her down the corridor. She begged her attorney for help. She called out to the crowd for someone to save her for the sake of her son. Her pleas fell on deaf ears. She begged for the chaplain to attend her, and together they began reciting the Lord's Prayer. But before she could reach the end, the clock had expired and there was no call from the governor. So they pulled the switch. Anna Marie Hahn was dead at 8.13 p.m. December 7th. On December 17, 1938, defense attorney Joseph H. Houdin announced that the letters Anna had given him the night of her execution had been sold to the Cincinnati Inquirer and the money was to be put into a trust for her son Oscar. The letters read, in part, quote, I don't know how I could have done the things I did in my life. Only God knows what came over me when I gave Albert Palmer, that first one, that poison that caused his death. When I stood by Mr. Wagner as he was laid out at the funeral home, I don't know how it was I didn't scream out at the top of my voice. I couldn't in my mind believe it was me. I can't believe it even today. I couldn't believe it in the court when those people came to the room and told the jury how they said these men died. I was sitting there hearing a story like out of a book all about another person. As things come to my mind now as I put them on this paper, I can't believe I'm writing about things I did myself. However, they must be about me because they are in my mind and I know them. Now I am so close to death. Death is all around me. I have been here on death row for what seems like another lifetime already. Several other people in this place have been called out. I got scared that if the police would start questioning me, maybe all of this about Mr. Palmer would come out. Something cried out in me to stop him so that all my troubles wouldn't start again. I don't know what guided my hand, but I fixed him some orange juice and placed a half of teaspoon of the powder poison which I took from my purse in the glass. Mr. Wagner drank it down. Early the next day, I went back to the room and Mr. Wagner was very sick. I knew what I had done to him. It was another mind that made me do these things. I didn't do them. I cannot describe how I felt when Mr. Wagner died and that I had something to do with his death. I did not harm Mr. Wagner for his money. I never had such a thought. It was not until Mr. Wagner had died that I wrote the will. I placed it in his room on the afternoon that the man from the probate came from Mr. Wagner's room. The poison that I used is, for all that I know, still in my house. I found it in the paint cupboard in the basement. If I had never found the poison in the first place, I know that I would not be in this trouble right now. I hope that God will take care of my son, for I would not want anything to happen to my boy. I feel that God has shown me my wrongs in life, and my only regret is that I have not the power to undo the trouble and heartache that I have caused. Signed, Anna Marie Hahn. True crime reporter David Lore writes, quote, Anna's son, 12-year-old Oscar Hahn, was placed with a foster family in the Midwest. The Cincinnati Crime Book claims that the newspaper kept its promise to Anna and bankrolled the boy's education and never revealed his name or whereabouts to the public. 
The only thing ever released about Oscar was that he lived a normal life and eventually fought for the Navy during World War II. End quote. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Bag of Bones Podcast. And thank you for reaching out with your comments and suggestions for new episodes. I love knowing what you look forward to. If you haven't yet, feel free to join us over on the socials. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram at Bag of Bones Podcast or on my website at elizabethbougeret.com. I am Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.